welcome you to this edition of the Publisher's Desk. My name is Pierpaolo Finaldi. I'm the CEO and publisher of the Catholic Truth Society, which has been serving the Catholic community in the UK and abroad for over 150 years. We've published everything from prayer cards to booklets to leather-bound liturgical books and everything in between, and have published great Catholic authors, including Cardinal Newman, uh, Ronald Knox, G.K. Chesterton, and many others. Uh, today, I'm very happy to be speaking to Father James Bradley. Uh, welcome, Father James. Um, a priest of the Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham and a longtime collaborator and uh, friend of the CTS. He is Assistant Professor of Canon Law at the Catholic University of America and was until recently priest in charge at the parish of the Holy Family in Southampton. He has degrees in music, theology and canon law, and I hope we'll be able to talk about all three. So, yeah, as I was saying, welcome, Father James. Thanks, Pierre It's great to be here. So I think we met not long after the CTS had published Pope Benedict's Anglicanorum Chaitibus, which kickstarted the whole ordinary adventure. Um, that was just, what, just over 10, 10 years ago now? It was, yeah, 2009 it came out. Okay. And I believe you were just on your way to ordination, if I'm not not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, so I was I was at Theological College in Oxford studying um, theology as an Anglican ordinand, a seminarian, and preparing for uh, to receive holy orders in the Church of England. And then I left there, became a curate in a parish in Kent. And we came into the church with about 40 parishioners, myself and the vicar of the parish. Um, and uh, yeah, we received into the ordinariate in 2011. So I have my trusty copy of the CTS Anglicorum Chaitibus <laughs> the hand. It's now it's now slightly dogged and and full of annotations from various levels of study. So it's it's still well, there. It's a good there's use. Ever, there's ever a book that's changed one's life. I suppose that one that one's one of them. I'll say yeah 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 yeah. So I mean CTS has been a, a great supporter of the ordinariates, and we've published all the liturgical book uh, books of the ordinary use of the Roman Rite. I, mean, I, I believe that's the, the correct way of referring to it, um, including the Divine Worship Missal, uh, the Book of Occasional Services, and most recently, the Book of Pastoral Care of the Sick and Dying. Um, so I, I believe the, your copies are on your way to you as we speak. Yeah, I'm waiting with bated breath for the sick and dying. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's probably a, a good time after all that we've experienced um, for that to be coming out. Um, and uh, we're also working on a, on a larger project um, that you've, you've been involved in for a while. Do you want to tell us something about that? Sure. I mean, let me just start off by saying that I think the work that the Catholic Truth Society has done with the Ordinaria, particularly with the liturgical books, has been really first class. And it's really helped us to be able to put those texts into people's hands, not just our own people, but other people who are interested, and to demonstrate that these texts have been you know, beautifully put together, beautifully compiled, and beautifully presented, worthy liturgical books. So thanks, first of all, to CTS for all the great work that you do with that. Um, yeah, we're, we're- It's working, been a pleasure. Yeah, good. <laughs> we're working on um, uh, the uh, breviary at the moment, the Divine Office. And this is a project which is taking quite a lot of time. Um, uh, we're 10 years old, uh, as you mentioned, the Ordinariates are 10 years old now. Um, and in England, we had something called the Customary, which was a kind of interim uh, office book for the clergy to use. When we first um, came into the church, it was quite important that we had something to pray the daily office with. And so this was given interim status 
um, and we were allowed to use that. But obviously, we want to develop something that's more lo that's longer lasting that we can put in the hands of our priests, but also the laity. And that's what we're working on at the moment. And we have been working with the other ordinariates in the United States and Canada and in Australia and um, obviously ourselves in England and Wales and our groups in Scotland to think about what might be suitable, what might be appropriate. And um, we've worked out really that because of the divergence of liturgical traditions in the Anglican communion, something that fits the Australian, England, Wales category and something that fits the uh, United States category um, is, is best. So that's where we're kind of up to at the moment. And the England and Wales Australia edition, the Commonwealth edition, as we're terming it at the moment, um, is, um, is, yeah, is, is in process. Oh, it's been it's been great to kind of discover this this uh, liturgical book, and uh, I was particularly impressed with I suppose what would be the equivalent of the Office of Readings. Um, there's a heck of a lot of, of scripture there read every day, um, two long readings in the morning and two in the evening, and essentially the book's going to contain more or less the whole Bible. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So, so as things stand, um, the hope is that we'll basically preserve morning prayer and evening prayer as they're found in the 1662 prayer book. Um, so very, um, very familiar to anybody who's ever been to Cathedral Evensong or listens to Evensong on Radio 3 on Wednesday afternoons. Um, and alongside that also the little hours, so prime, terst, sext, known and compline, um, which will kind of complement those two bookends of the day. Matins and Evensong, morning prayer and evening prayer have always been the, the kind of keystone of the Anglican prayer life. Um, and the little hours that uh, we're familiar with from the Roman Breviary from the monastic office um, aren't so familiar, but they did kind of creep in during the end of the 19th and 20th century, really, um, and were quite sort of important. So we wanted to preserve those as well, and particularly to focus on prime and compline. You know, People always ask for a, 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 a prayer for the morning and a prayer for the evening that's not as long as the office. Well, prime and compline, people always used to pray, used to hear prime and compline Catholics, people who would pray uh, those hours, morning and evening. And so we wanted to kind of use the tradition to find a solution to a modern problem. So to reintroduce those offices to people and put them in people's hands. And then, as you say, also the lectionary, we're very excited that we're going to be able to include in this book the entire lectionary for morning and evening prayer, which will provide all of the readings. So someone can say the office on the train or if we're ever allowed out of our homes again, on a bus or something like that. Um, and, um, and all of those texts will be there. So we'll be using the, the 1961 uh, prayer book lectionary, which is a beautiful lectionary, which follows the liturgical year very, very well and follows also the liturgical calendar that we have in the ordinariates, the seasons. And things. Well, the, the, uh, the wonderful thing, uh, and I suppose I can say this is almost the uh, the advantage that it will have over the Roman breviary is that it will be there in in one single volume. Um, so uh, as, as opposed to the, the, the three massive volumes that, that are needed for the, for the Roman breviary. So yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, the Anglican tradition is, is focused very heavily on the idea of having a book. You know, the Book of Common Prayer had everything in it that you'd need. It had the, you know, the visitation of the sick, the funeral rites, the marriage rite, the ordination rites. The communion right all of these things in in one book and we're not able to do that because we have a far richer liturgical life than than the prayer book envisages but to have a book with everything in it rather than several volumes is certainly desirable for us yeah 
Well, we're, we're working to get that ready uh, by the probably about this time next year or hopefully a bit earlier. God, yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're looking forward to, to uh, really getting our teeth stuck into that. So, I mean, we got into the liturgical weeds a bit there. Um, <laughs> we can go back to the beginning, um, I suppose. So for those who might not have come across the term, um, what are the ordinariates established under Anglicanorum Chaitibus? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And <laughs> I'm glad that, we, glad that we come to that because I, I think that a lot of people um, hear the word ordinariate and they think it means all sorts of different things. So let's let's be really precise. It's a jurisdiction in the Latin church, so in the western half of the Catholic church. Um, it's equivalent to a diocese, but people are members of it by virtue of being personally members of it rather than um, being defined by territory. So if you live in London, you're likely to be in the Diocese of Westminster or Southwark, or I think probably Brentwood as well a little bit. Yeah, um, just in the, the far reaches of the East End. There you go. Um, whereas if you're in the, an ordinariate, you'll live in a, in a bishop's conference. So either in England and Wales or in the United States or in Australia, but um, you'll have to decide to become part of the ordinariate, and there is there's criteria for that. So being a former Anglican is, is obviously the most most uh, obvious one. And these these jurisdictions, I should say, yeah, are, are set up precisely for for those people who have come into the Catholic Church from the Anglican Communion or from one of the Anglican traditions, and who want to preserve something of the liturgical, spiritual, and pastoral traditions of the Anglican tradition in the Catholic Church. Yeah, because I, I was going to say there have been various kind of uh, waves of, of uh, Anglicans entering into the Catholic Church. I mean, it happened in kind of um, dribs and drabs over, especially over the kind of 20th century. Sure. Um, but uh, there was a there was a sort of a surge, we say, when uh, the uh, decision was taken to ordain women in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 92. Uh, yeah. Um, so. Uh, but what's the difference between those and um, the those who came in through um, Anglican or Chaitibus? Yeah, well, you know, it's a very interesting question because actually the trajectory towards Anglican or Chaitibus, towards the ordinariates, shows us really that all of these groups wanted basically what we've now got. So we can go all the way back, back to 1845 and Newman's reception into the church. And even in the in the years after Newman's reception, he was encouraging of groups of Anglicans who wanted to come into the Catholic Church, but who wanted to preserve parts of their tradition. So that that really continued really through the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. And there are examples of, of entire dioceses asking for um, communion with the Catholic Church. So the Diocese of Amritsa in India, there's also um, the Diocese of Matabeliland in uh, what was Zimbabwe. Uh, and so there's, there's a great, um, uh, trajectory of these groups of Anglicans who want to come into the Catholic Church. And it, it kind of uh, gained momentum really in the United States at the end of the 1970s and 1980s, um, where they started to ordain uh, women to the priesthood and made decisions about church polity that many Anglicans were uncomfortable with. And then in England and Wales um, in the 1990s with the ordination of women uh, to the priesthood in the Church of England. So a lot of these groups have, have desired at various points uh, to come into the church and to preserve their traditions. And Pope Benedict, who I will say was a figure throughout all, many of these later conversations in his work at the CDF, um, he recognized that and, and responded to that. 
So it's not something that comes out of the blue in that sense. Right, right, right. And I mean, you you mentioned this idea of um, coming to Rome, but with the uh, maintaining the Anglican patrimony. I mean, how would you kind of define that Anglican patrimony? What are the most important elements of it? Okay, uh, big question. Um, whenever anyone talks about the Anglican patrimony, they always point to things. You know, they'll they'll pick up a book of common prayer and they'll say, Evensong is the Anglican patrimony. Or they'll point to particular institutions in the life of the of the Anglican tradition. So they'll say, married clergy is the Anglican patrimony, or something like that. All of that is true to a point. I think there's something more here, something which... Um, in a sense, if you were to boil all these things down, the essence would be something um, which, you, which we need to define. And Monsignor Newton, the ordinary of the ordinariate in England, always says it's easier for people outside the ordinariates to identify what the patrimony is than for us to say. It's, it's easier for people who, who, who see us from the outside and can identify differences than for us to identify them ourselves. I think the, the, the thing that I would describe it as is a manifestation of the virtue of religion. So that innate sense that we do for God the things that God deserves because we love God and he loves us. So it's a different approach to law. It's a different approach to the moral life. It's a different approach to the liturgy. That doesn't mean to say that we have different, um, different um, interpretations of what those things are, but we approach them in a different way. Um, and you, there's a joke, isn't there? You know, you go to a, um, a high church Anglican parish for the Easter Vigil, and it's four and a half hours long, and they've got everything they can get in. They sing everything they can. They have all the readings they can, all the rest of it. And you go to a, a, a Roman Catholic parish, and the priest has cut it down to 45 minutes because he wants to try and keep it as short as possible. It's, it's a gross generalization, and it's not true. But there's a sense in which Anglicans do things um, not so much out of um, obedience to the letter of the law, but because of an innate sense of, of love, virtue. And that's something that I think that um, Catholics um, have, but nevertheless sometimes lose sight of um, because of the conditions in which we live our lives. So I think that's something that's that, that, that way of living that I would describe as a manifestation of the virtue of religion is really what I would describe as the, the Anglican patrimony in the Catholic Church. Because yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in, in this question. I mean, I, I, I don't want to just lob softballs at you. I'm going to ask, ask some, uh, some difficult questions as well. I mean, in a sense, you know, I think from, from our perspective, the, Ang the Anglican Church is definitely, was definitely born out of a uh, kind of schismatic act and, and uh, you know, certainly began um, with some very kind of heretical ideas. Uh, and so, in, in a sense, why do you think that there ended up being something there that was really kind of worth bringing into the Catholic Church. What, what was the, the kind of trajectory that, that brought you or, or one away from, you know, what, what were kind of very uh, questionable beginnings um, to, to something that's worth kind of really uh, preserving and indeed kind of being enriched by and bringing in? So the answer is God's grace. Um, the Lord, you know, has, has allowed us to be able to identify in things that exist outside the Catholic Church, those signs of his grace. And in a sense, I think that's that's what this is a recognition of, that there are things that have taken place um, either that either that originated in the Catholic Church 
and were maintained in some form or another through the centuries in Anglicanism. And so have been preserved and you can identify that they're Catholic things in their origin. Or they're things which have grown up um, outside the communion of the Catholic Church, but nevertheless we can look at and recognize in them good things. Um, and that's a miracle of God's grace. Um, so I think kind of reacquainting ourselves with some of the customs and traditions of the Catholic Church that may have either died out or been um, uh, reformed in particular ways or uh, changed because of the, the passage of time, but which have been preserved in a particular way in this community, that's a good thing because we can kind of connect with the past. And it's also a good exercise, I think, in, in um, being able to identify what's good in, in these other communities um, and, and latching onto that. Now, not to, not to do that uncritically, you know, the, the Pope Benedict set the ordinariates up and he entrusted them to the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is an unusual thing to do because he saw in it doctrinal issues and these needed to be sorted out. So the CDF has, has really taken, taken charge of this whole project in order to ensure that those things that do come in, in a, in a sense, have been, um, I think purged would be too strong a term, but, but have been um, um, refined so that they are in, in full, in full um, conformity with Catholic faith and morals. Yeah, and I mean, I, I must say I, I, I experience this every, every year around kind of East, Easter time or, you know, when or even at Christmas, sometimes when you listen to Handel's Messiah or you listen to a, a, a Bach Passion and you see that the kind of superabundance of God's grace is, is so great that um, even even um, churches which uh, have only grasped a part of, of the truth, you know, leaving aside, they've left aside the the sacraments and only hold, held on to the word, you know, for example, in Handel's Messiah, can still touch you, you know, very deeply and and uh, contain such truths that, that can turn you to God, really. Well, and, and it is it is miraculous. I mean, I, I really, really believe that, 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 that the way in which the Lord has intervened in the lives of people outside the full community of the church and drawn them to him, to himself, um, is, is, is a beautiful thing. I mean, I... I like to tell people, you know, I w didn't meet a practicing Catholic until I went to university. And by that time, I'd I was already set on this trajectory. You know, God was moving in various ways in my life to point me in this direction before I'd even encountered a, a practicing Catholic, certainly one who was going to talk to me about their faith. Um, I had a few friends at school who were, who were Catholics but didn't go to church, and their parents may or may not have done. Um, but I never met anyone who proposed to me the Catholic truth. And so, in a sense, the Lord was preparing me for this moment by um, these experiences of his grace through these unusual methods and means. Um, so I think that, and that's probably quite common amongst people who have come into the Catholic Church, particularly through the ordinariates. We, that's why we feel quite passionately about these elements of our tradition, because we don't want to just say, say that they're bad. Um, they're not, and there's great goodness in them, and we think that if the if there's a space for them in the church, in the Catholic church, that other Anglicans, other Christians will be drawn to the church through them. Well, I, I must say, I've, I've experienced the the uh, Anglican, uh, sorry, the ordinary rite um, a couple of times, and uh, once in um, in Westminster Cathedral. Uh, and I must say that I, I felt, I mean, I, I'm looking at this slightly from the outside because I'm Italian, kind of Polish background. Um, but I've, I've lived in England my whole life and uh, and I must say that the experience of it was of experiencing something which was really 
uh, rooted in in this place. Um, I, I felt very much at home um, because you know I've I, I very much grown up in in England and owe, owe uh, England a lot in terms of my formation, intellectual formation, cultural formation, and to to be able to experience a, a fully Catholic um, liturgy. You, but hearing those wonderful um, overtones of, of the, the, the beautiful English that we hear at the, you know, the royal weddings and all those things was was a wonderful experience. I, I, I kind of thought, I, I wonder if this is what the mass would have been like had uh, we translated it, but without the, the changes of, of, the, of the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a question we'll never know the answer to, but, but yeah, it, it's... Yeah. I think I do think that, that that experience of vernacular liturgy in England is a great gift to the wider church. And we see, you know, even in the translation that we use in English of the Lord's Prayer, you know, that is a that is a translation that comes from the same uh, um, translation um, school, we might say, as as the prayer book language. So I, I think that's right. And and. You know, um, Archbishop Augustine Denoyer, who's uh, someone who's been involved with the Ordinarius from the outset, said uh, the manner in which an ecclesial community worships uniquely expresses its inner life. A man the manner in which an ecclesial community worships uniquely expresses its inner life. And I think that connection between the way that we worship, um, which is very distinctive for the Ordinarius, and who we are, our identity, is is so is so intimate that we 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 can't divide the two, um, and you're right. It, you know, as I, I think sometimes people go to the ordinary at mass and they think it's very beautiful and they like it, but they can't quite get on with it. And I always say to them, well, that doesn't matter because it's it's not your patrimony in that sense. You wouldn't I wouldn't expect you to connect with it at the level that I would connect with it. And there are other people who come along with that no no Anglican background at all who fall in love with it. And that's fine as well, but it's it's not a given in that sense. Mm. Well, um, let's move on to one of my uh, my favourite topics, and I think one that's very close to your heart um, of uh, of music. I mean, the the Anglican Church has, I think we could agree, gone off the deep end on on many theological and moral matters. But uh, to anyone who's ever been to a, a cathedral even song on a Sunday afternoon, it's clear that the C of E has possibly done a better job of conserving its musical patrimony um, than the Catholic Church has. So what's been your experience of music as a Catholic and uh, where do you see it kind of going in the future? Hmm. Um, well, let me just say, first of all, some, some of my experience of music as, as, as an Anglican before I became a Catholic. So I, I grew up, a, um, I was a chorister at Winchester Cathedral and um, spent a few years singing there and then I was a choral scholar, went on to read music at university, directed choirs and things. So I've got some experience of the Anglican musical tradition in places where it's done really quite well, as well as parish churches and direct music of parish church things. So um, it's, 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 it's a very rich environment and you get exposed to a lot of different musical styles as well. Um, so I, you know, I was familiar with most of the um, composers of polyphony, Renaissance polyphony, um, before I became a Catholic. You know, I was familiar with Catholic hymnody as well as Anglican hymnody, the chant tradition and things like that. But you asked me rather <laughs> pointedly about, um, about uh, my experience of, of, of Catholic church music. Well, let me say that when I was um, a, a parish priest in, in Southampton, 
I tried to bring some of that experience that I had as, as an Anglican um, into the um, celebration of the mass in the parish. And that was particularly when I, when I, what I mean to say there is really the, the participation of the people in the singing. So we were, it was a parish without any real musical tradition when I arrived. They had um, four unaccompanied hymns on Sunday and no mass setting, no singing of the parts of the mass or anything. And by the time I left, we sang, and you can ask them, we sang everything, <laughs> at least once. Um, and we, we did that really by bringing simple chants to people. It was a very um, diverse congregation. So we had people from, from Kerala, from Goa, from Poland, from you name it. Um, and so there was no common hymn tradition. Um, I remember one Sunday after Mass, come, someone coming up to me and saying, Father, why can't we sing some hymns that we know? I said, you tell me five hymns that you know and see if the person over there knows them as well. Mm. So we, we settled on singing English chant, very simple English chant. And most of it was from um, a guy called Adam Bartlett, who's a friend of mine who I've work, worked with a little bit and who does great, great work. And um, he produced some some great things, and we've been we used those, and we sang the ordinary of the mass a little bit in Latin and Greek, but also in English. Um, but yeah, sang the propers um, in that way. And as I say, a parish with no musical tradition at all managed to pick these things up really quite easily. So I would say, as an encouragement, um, that it's possible um, to sing all of the texts that you beautifully produce in the CTS missal, um, and to sing them. Um, and you might want to add to that some hymnody and some other settings and some other music. But to sing the liturgical text is something that's possible, even in a parish without, you know, the resources of a, of a cathedral. Mm. I mean, it's true, uh, I believe, that, that there's much more of a kind of tradition within the Anglican Church of paying musicians. Um, I mean, that's quite un that would be quite unusual in the Catholic Church. Um, yes, that's right. So certainly bigger churches would pay singers to come in and would sing the services on Sunday. Yeah. But there's also a tradition of, of parish choirs and parish choirs aren't music groups. Parish choirs are choirs and they'd rehearse at least one evening a week and they would learn a mass setting and they'd learn um, an anthem and they'd learn the hymns. We used to, I remember, choir practice in the in the village church. We would we would spend half an hour just singing the harmony of the hymns so that we could prepare those things for so there was a, a a sense that this was something that was done by the people of the parish um but the tradition that they entered into was something they entered into they didn't sort of come and say well i can play this instrument therefore all the music has to be like the, in this style they wanted to participate in this in this thing that they received um, and maybe that's something that we could we could try and grab hold of a little bit in our parishes yeah, I mean, it's interesting. My, my own experience was that um, growing up, um, there was a choir in my local parish and then uh, a kind of real go ahead parish priest um, let us know that Vaxton too had had uh, abolished choirs so that the um, the people could sing and uh, the choir was was dismissed. And and um, it's it took me having to kind of um, publish the uh, the documents of Vaxton too at CCS to read that. In fact, choirs were were strengthened by the documents of Vatican II, but uh, that, that seemed to have passed a few people by. The uh, the church where I, I was mentioning, where I, I worked for a few years uh, in Southampton, was, was built in 1965. And between the church being built and the church opening, 
apparently, according to the newspaper reports at the time, that the Second Vatican Council had changed the need for the choir loft. So there was this huge choir loft which was built, but they never used it until I got there um, because they turned the front rows of the, of the church in so that people could sing as part of the body of the congregation and really got away from singing, um, you know, from having any choral music at all. And, you know, as you rightly say, that's that's not, it just isn't there in the documents of the Second Vatican mm-hmm. Council, which encourage um, the use of, of, of singing and, and, and liturgical music. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I, I, I must say, um, since the new translation um, came out in 2011, um, with the chant um, very much front and centre within the, the liturgical books, I've seen a, a, that that sort of simple chant tradition return um, in quite a big way. And it's amazing what, what can be done just, just by printing a, a certain music within a book. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that sense that it's there and so you can do it, that helps a great deal. You know, I, I think I'm right in saying that it's the it's the liturgical book that's got the most music ever published in the Catholic Church in it. Is that right? Other than obviously yeah, yeah. other than like the Gradually Romanum and things, but but as as a as a missile, it's got the most music ever produced in a in a in a missile. And um and I think having it there makes it very accessible to people and it means that they then say, Well, you know, actually it does give us the music here, so why don't we just sing what's in the book? That's it's helpful to priests as well. And the, the thing that I, I like about it, I mean, mo- a lot of people don't get to see the the uh, the altar missile, but um, in all the prefaces, for example, it, it's always the music that's printed first, first. and then the the uh, the spoken text is is printed again, but after the music text. So it really does say to you, you know, well, the first the first thing you should think about is is singing the text, and then uh, if if you really can't. You know, go go to the spoken one. That's right. Yeah. Good. So, look, just as we uh, as we get to the end and, and kind of uh, draw to a close, I wanted to ask you a question um, about, in a sense, about the future of the ordinariates, because um, as the number of Anglicans uh, swimming the Tiber, and indeed the the number of Anglicans full stop um, will kind of undoubtedly um, dwindle uh, in in the future. What what do you think is the the long-term future of, of the ordinariates. Where where do you see them going, both in, uh, at home and in the in the states where you are at the moment as well? Sure, I think first of all, I'm not sure that it's the 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 trickle of of Anglicans coming to the Catholic Church and coming to the ordinariate has really slowed in the way that we think. I think we had a bump a few years around the time of Anglican Orem Chetipus and a large number of people who responded either immediately or soon afterwards. But I think we are still seeing people come and particularly young people and particularly clergy. I know a number of young Anglican clergy who in the last couple of years have, you know, left their Anglican Theological College, gone to a curacy, maybe gone to their first job and then really come to terms with, with, with what their life is going to look like in the Church of England and realised where they need to be. So I think that will certainly continue. I don't see that that's, that stream drying up entirely. Mm. I think the ordinariates, though, will, will grow in two ways. Firstly, by our gaining a sense of, our, of confidence in, in, our, in our tradition and being able to say to people, this is who we are, this is what we do. We need places to be able to do that, and we need to do that with great confidence. 
Um, and I think as we learn to do that, and as we're given the opportunities to do that, communities will grow up around those things. I think if you look at in England, for instance, where you find the oratories or the Dominicans, those, you know, they're quite small groups of clergy and people, really, but they have great impact in the life of the church in England and Wales. And I think if the ordinary is, is given the opportunity to have that, um, then we will also be able to be con contributing in, in a similar sort of way. I think the other thing, though, is that our own communities need to start rediscovering those traditions for ourselves, but also generating vocations and kind of being more confident in ourselves, not just ad extra, but ad intra, um, and being able to, um, to grow from within in that sense, and so not just numerically, but also in terms of the sorts of things we're doing. And I mean, we, we've had in, in the Ordinariate in England and Wales, and also in the Ordinariate here, and I know in Australia as well, um, young men who have come forward for priestly ordination, who are going through or have gone through the seminary process. So I, I think it will, it will grow both from converts, from people who come to us because they, they find in us a home that they might not find elsewhere in the Catholic Church, and also from within. Um, and I think in those sort of three ways, we'll, over time, please God, continue to grow. It's not going to be, you know, I think when the ordinary was set up, I remember, I, I, I myself hoped for it, but I remember people saying, it will be the reconversion of England. Well, maybe in a thousand years, but uh, let's just let's just work quietly and slowly and, and with, with intentionality. And we might be at least part of the equation. Yeah, that's something to, to really pray for, especially in this year of the rededication of England as Our Lady's dowry. I think Absolutely. that's... A, pray for and i mean you don't have to be born an anglican to to become part of the ordinary do you or to, or to worship an ordinary no family? in fact um one of the youngest members of the personal ordinary to my lady walsingham my niece um was was not born an anglican she was born a catholic and she was baptized into the ordinary as it were so um we have people obviously now who 10 years on who have who, who know nothing other than the life of the catholic church through the ordinary but also we receive people into the catholic church who either weren't baptized, weren't confirmed as Catholics, baptized as Catholics, but not confirmed as Catholics, but also people who come from other traditions that are associated with Anglicanism. So for instance, if you've been a Methodist, or if you've got family members who have been Anglicans and they become Catholics, you can come with them, um, or you can come even by yourself. So there are various sort of avenues open, but it's not just a sort of anyone can join, but it's, but it's, it's quite a broad and generous um, um, sort of category. And I, I do think that these um, more kind of devotional uh, books um, will help people to get to know the ordinary um, tradition in a way that um, maybe the liturgical books, because I, I believe the, the liturgy can only be celebrated by uh, a priest of the ordinary. Is that right? Or... Ordinarily, yeah. yeah. Okay. Ordinary. But for example, my... Um, in our in our family are uh, the um, St Gregory's prayer book, which collects together the uh, the, the the prayers of uh, of the Anglican patrimony, has fast become the one that we use most in the family because there's lots of beautiful little family liturgies that that we can use in there, you know, for the, the blessing of a, a an Advent calendar or uh, sorry an Advent wreath and things like that. So we we're using that all the time, and it's and I wonder whether um, also the uh, the, the, the breviary, um, that could well be used by any any layperson. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the one of the things about the Anglican liturgical tradition, particularly in English speaking countries, is that it will be immediately familiar because the the cadences, the language, even the phrases in the prayers will be familiar. Um, and a lot of the texts are the same as they're in the Roman Missal. Um, they're just translated differently. So I think people becoming familiar with those ways of praying, um, whether or not they're in the ordinary, it will be a good thing. And I, I certainly would commend people, you know, when the opportunity exists and the daily office is, is, is in our hands, I would certainly commend people to try it as a, as a kind of way of, of praying the office um, with, uh, you know, with the church on a daily basis and getting into those rhythms, but in a way that might, um, you know, might just be an, another another way of trying to pray the office and trying to, you know, in, 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 in interact with the liturgical life of the church. Great. Well, thank you very much for um, joining us. It's been wonderful to speak with you and uh, to keep up the good work, and, yeah, especially in, in the States there. Thank you. And likewise, thanks, Pierre Paolo, and thanks for all oh. that you do for CTS and with us. Thank you.